0: talking feds is sponsored by our friends at total wine and more rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine spirits and beers
1: welcome to talking feds a round table that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day i'm harry litman It's been a week of stresses and challenges to the country from Afghanistan to Austin, Texas, and many places in between. The U.S. military no longer has boots on the ground in Afghanistan for the first time in 20 years. And almost simultaneous with its withdrawal, the Taliban filled the breach and regained power. In a primetime speech to the country, President Biden insisted that the windup of the war had been a success even as Republicans pilloried the effort. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said that the withdrawal marks a new chapter of America's engagement in which we will lead with diplomacy. But how that will work and the possible international repercussions of having essentially given up on the long-standing effort to defeat the Taliban remain to be seen. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision by the five most conservative justices, declined to stay a draconian abortion law in Texas that is flatly irreconcilable with the court's governing precedents. Democrats cried foul and revived proposals to change the court's structure and to pass federal legislation to protect abortion rights. And the January 6th Select Committee flexed its muscles with document requests that portended a probing review of the possible involvement in the insurrection of Republican leaders such as Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan. To size up and analyze these turbulent developments at home and abroad, we have a great panel of leading voices from government, journalism, and the private sector, all returning guests to talking feds and they are John Alter, an author, political analyst, documentary filmmaker, columnist, television producer, and radio host. He is also the author of three New York Times bestsellers and recently launched a newsletter, Old Goats Ruminating with Friends. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Harry. Glad to be here.
1: Matt Miller, a partner at ViaNovo former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice, and he's worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate. Always great to have you, and I think I've said that more than to any guest on Talking Feds in the last two years. Thanks so much, Matt.
3: Always great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: And returning to Talking Feds, Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon, who represents Pennsylvania's 5th Congressional District. She is vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee and a member of the House Committee on Rules. Previously, she was the National Pro Bono Counsel at Ballard Spar. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us again on Talking Feds.
4: Thanks for having me on on a Quiet Newsweek.
1: We do have quite a rock and sock and week, and let's begin in Texas. Matt Miller is native state, which seems to be on a crash program to paint the state a deep. Trump read in literally dozens of areas, particularly voting rights. But the legislation on center stage this week was the one that effectively bans all abortions after six weeks into pregnancy. And by a 5-4 vote with all three Trump justices in the majority, the Supreme Court declined to intervene The bill is something of a double whammy with abortion restrictions that cover 85% of all previous procedures in Texas, plus a nasty scheme to insulate it from review. Congresswoman, I actually wanted to ask you to put on your old pro bono hat and give us a little understanding of how they were able to write this to elude review so far and what needs to happen for a federal court to actually weigh in on what seems to be a patently unconstitutional statute.
4: Well, I think you're right. It's patently unconstitutional. The clear intent of the statute is to outlaw abortions, which under Roe v. Wade for 40 some odd years have clearly been supporting a woman's freedom to choose what to do in that situation. It's just really, really troubling. I think Justice Roberts... Decision is a great way to access it. Justice Roberts dissented and he pointed out a number of things. First of all, that the statute appears to be unconstitutional in its intent. Second of all, that this procedural thing was set up where the government isn't enforcing it. They've essentially tasked it out to vigilantes, which is something I'd love to talk about as we go on vigilante government.
1: Yeah. Right.
4: And then they did it in the shadow docket, you know, the equivalent of the dead of night in the court system. No briefing, no arguments, no real opinion from the majority on why they're doing this. So they fell for the clear intent of the drafters of this, which is to try to come up with some cockamamie scheme to make it hard to review. That's one of the problems we have with the Supreme Court when they don't look at reality and instead they try to make these narrow decisions. We saw something similar with the Voting Rights Act decision that came down earlier this year in Bronovich, where they didn't look at what's actually going on in terms of voter suppression and just said, well, we're going to look at some technicalities instead.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could say they fell for, or you really could say they capitulated. It gets very legally arcane very quickly, but I'll just put on my Supreme Court clerk pointy hat and say, you know, basically, whenever a statute like this passes, you can sue the state officials to enjoin their executing it. And they have this very clever scheme and really dastardly set up by a former Scalia clerk, actually, to make it, as you say, Congresswoman, the province of individuals to try to enforce the scheme and get $10,000 a pop. And it's worked, right? Right now, the providers are basically shuttered in Texas. They're scared of the consequences. They're scared of the scheme it's set up. Let me just ask this. The notion is, oh, well, we'll really get in the fray, perhaps, when people start getting hurt and the rubber hits the road. Is it the case right now that pregnant women in Texas are being denied medical treatment? Hasn't the rubber already hit the road, as it were, in Texas
3: Yeah, it absolutely has. That's the thing that can't be undone here, right? Which is why I think the argument why typically you would see an injunction in a case like this is when someone's constitutional rights are going to be impinged upon in a way that cannot be reversed. That the court would enjoin the statute while they figure out what to do about the underlying constitutional questions. You raise the question of whether the court kind of fell for it or acquiesced. I think they absolutely they fell for it because they wanted to fall for it. This scheme was designed to get this exact type of judicial ruling, to have the courts kind of throw up their hands and say, well, we don't know what to do here. We don't know uh, who to enjoin, so we're going to do nothing. And so now there are women in Texas who have the constitutional right to an abortion under long-standing Supreme Court doctrine who are not able to get one. And I, I think the logic of the majority obviously falls apart when you think of just about any other constitutional right, especially any constitutional right that conservatives would endorse, say the right to bear arms or the right to criticize Republican politicians. If you had California or New York or any other Democratic state, you pass a law, say, outline any type of gun ownership in that state and leaving the enforcement mechanism to private citizens, you can bet the Supreme Court would rush to enjoin that statute. And they wouldn't worry about any of the procedural niceties. They wouldn't worry about any of the problems that they supposedly got hung up on here. They would enjoin the statute because it was a clear violation of individual constitutional rights. And the fact that they didn't do so here, I mean, look, it's obvious. Sometimes it's, pretty obvious and pretty transparent what's happening. It's a majority that is very hostile to abortion rights and are looking for any chance uh, to get those rights. And this is probably, I'm uh, sad to say, that it's not, a, you know, not a, a novel observation on my part, just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming with this majority.
1: Yeah. And by the way, to your point, the very five did just that, jumped over the procedural niceties in a California case, raising religious rights, and that there it wasn't a problem. I would say, plainly that any court between 1973 and 2016 would not have let this law go into effect. Should we now expect a whole wave of copycat bills with this same sort of nasty strategy for evading reviews in other states? Well, I think they're going to try in a number of different state legislatures, but I'm not sure they're going to be successful.
2: I think the politics of this Issue are being transformed as we speak, and in a way that is very unfavorable for Republicans. I've been reading the political tweets about this all day. It's a disaster politically for Republicans. We're not sure how it'll manifest itself in the midterms, but because they're a long way away and there could be other issues, but it's a real problem with suburban women who care about this issue. And you have to understand that since 1973, the threat to uh, a woman's right to choose has been an abstraction, been something that a lot of voters go, well, the liberals are always crying wolf about this. They're always saying that bad things are gonna happen. Well, now it's happened and it'll probably happen in the Mississippi case too. And that I think will have a big effect on the politics. And so I think in some states, some very red states, You'll see copycat bills. But in other bigger states that are more competitive, I think it's going to be harder because a lot of Republican political operatives recognize that it's a disaster. Part of the question is how much pushback there is. So I want to ask the Congresswoman whether she plans to invite all nine justices to testify before the Judiciary Committee about the abuses, I would actually call it the corruption of the shadow docket. They're obviously not going to answer questions about pending cases, but at least they can talk about the abomination of our Supreme Court decisions circumventing, you know, oral arguments, circumventing courts of appeal, basically
4: creating a kind of a uh, dark Court. I've certainly been seeing a lot about the political impact and the idea that the GOP is now like the dog that caught the car. What does it do with it once it catches it? Because this is, I have a daughter in her late 20s, and she has some pretty strong opinions about this, as do most of her peers. The world has changed, and this is not a popular stance to be pushing. I mean, so we've already got a party that's uh, radical right extremists seem to be running the show, and now they're going to have this hung around their neck. So I think that's going to be pretty interesting. As for inviting the Supreme Court justices to testify, I know that the Senate Judiciary Committee has already said they're going to be holding some hearings, just kind of cringing inwardly as I think about all the subpoenas we've been trying to enforce over the last couple of years against the administration. But So what the heck, we might as well take on another branch.
1: Matt, look, this is an unpopular enactment, even in... Texas. So what is Governor Abbott thinking? It's not just with the voters, but companies who are doing business there. It's sort of a disaster for their employees. But he's obviously going pedal to the metal. What's his political mindset here?
3: You know, Governor Abbott lives like a lot of Texas Republican politicians and a lot of Republican politicians around the country lives in fear of one thing and one thing only, and that's a challenge from the right and the Republican primary. Texas is a state that over the last 20 years, I mean, really over the last 50 years, but especially over the last 20 years, has gotten more urban, more cosmopolitan, and more progressive. And as it has done so, the government in the state of Texas has gotten less progressive, has gotten more reactionary. The governments in the 90s and 2000s, led by you know, George W. Bush first and then Rick Perry, We're not progressive governments by any stretch of the imagination. We're not nearly as reactionary conservative as the government in in the state now, led by Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and then a majority in the state house. It's pretty far to the right as well. And it is kind of the story of the Republican Party writ large, where you see as the response to demographic change and the response to a change in kind of cultural values around the country, instead of embracing that and moving towards the center, they are moving further to the right in response. And for now, that's a successful strategy. And at some point it will collapse. And Governor Abbott is banking on the Republicans having a strong enough majority that he has to do things like this. And it's not just this. When you look at the, they just had completed a special session where you run down the list and every bill they took up were kind of cultural touchstones for the right. 600, all just kind of critical race theory and all this kind of stuff. And it is 100% focused on shoring up his flank from the right and hoping that he can do so in a state that is still just conservative enough that he's got the space to do that and not worry about a general election challenge. And of
1: course, there's a pernicious connection here to the voting rights legislation that he's passed, because one way to make it more successful is to disenfranchise, shave off enough people that he can maybe eke over the line with what's basically minority support. I think we're going to look at the fall
2: of 2021 as the beginning of the end for this right-wing domination of so much of our politics. I know that sounds Pollyannish. There are a lot of women in particular going to get hurt between now and then. There's a real, I think, burden on the philanthropic community and billionaires to fly indigent women who need abortions, Texas to New Mexico or wherever, so that they can have their reproductive rights upheld in another state. But I do think that the wheel is turning and that this is a Pyrrhic victory for the right wing. And we'll look back on this time as when many Americans woke up. Democrats have basically ignored these state legislative races. This is where the action is. They, they think, oh, I can't be bothered with that. I'm interested in who runs for president, but I don't even know who my state legislator is. Well, I think that's going to start to end now. And you're going to see some real organizing
1: around this issue because it's no longer an abstraction. Trump was actually pretty out front about this as the focus on legislatures. And speaking of the former president, let's focus in on the court. The result seems particularly galling because it's hard to have a more clear demonstration of the dividend of the McConnell-Trump kind of brass knuckles campaign to stack the court. So you're hearing now in response, there's a huge wave of anger in many dimensions among Democrats or pro-choice advocates at the end of the day, there's a lot of talk about reforming the court. Is that going anywhere? Actually, fundamental changes to the Supreme Court and terms and numbers?
4: Well, certainly, we have a bill that's circulating about that. And as you noted, there's been an increase in attention to that bill. But there was an increase in attention to that bill after the Branovich Voting Rights decision. So as long as the court continues to tack further right or wherever it is it's going, radical right. I think there is going to be a tension on that. As someone who's been involved with the court system, it really completely politicizes the court. And you hate to see that. I have long been interested in some of the reforms that we might need in order to address caseload and the resources that the court needs. And if this commission or other ideas about court reform say, hey, for example, we don't have enough justices to handle the circuit work. You know, we have however many circuits, 11, 12, 13, whatever we are up to now. And we had to do it for that reason. I think that's a very different consideration. But how much do we counter this, basically the weaponizing of every governmental structure? How much can you counter it by continuing to weaponize before you just burn the whole damn thing down?
1: All right, let's zero in for a second on the legislation then. Biden said he'll use every tool in his arsenal. And of course, we have really renewed interest in the bill that would purport to ensconce Roe as federal law, the Women's Health Protection Act. Is that going somewhere? And how would it work, basically? Well, it hasn't until
2: now, but I think it's very much on the table now. And people listening might go, well, wow, you can't get 60 votes for that in the Senate. You might not need 60 votes if there's filibuster reform, but I don't think you've covered the the Ornstein-Franken-41-on-the-floor proposal, which is a way around this problem. It changes the filibuster. It doesn't eliminate it. And Joe Manchin has said publicly that he's open to this kind of idea. Instead of requiring 60 votes to move on to a majority vote, you require those blocking the vote to have 41 members on the floor at all times and only germane debates. This can be done with a simple rule change, you know, that the Democrats can do with 50 vote, 51 votes, and it changes the onus of those trying to, you know, prevent majority votes in the U.S. Senate. And if this was done, you know, I just interviewed. Al Franken about this last week, and he was absolutely confident that the Republicans, in part because they're so old, it's sort of like using gerontocracy to defend democracy, that they would not be able to sustain this. Remember, the longest filibuster of all time is only 24 hours. And after the budget goes through, assuming now with the Mansion op-ed piece that it goes through, but after they do the the budget, at the end of this month, next month, they don't have to worry about the Senate's business being blocked for a few days or even a week by a Republican effort to prevent a majority vote. You know, if they made this rule change, amending the filibuster to create a talking filibuster that required 41 on the floor at all times, you really might be able to get not just voting rights, but immigration and even this abortion rights bill through
1: the Congress. It's possible. That's the Texas system and the sort of Jimmy Stewart way. But I wanted to ask the Congresswoman about that. There's a special kind of argument for a very fine-grained exception here, because this really is the outgrowth of the Supreme Court appointments. And I think the Dems could justifiably see it that way. And for that, of course, the filibuster was shelved. So it seems like a condign response. I used to be like a big proponent for this carve out like
2: they have for judges and executive branch. It's a non-starter with cinema and mansion. But they're very open to the talking filibuster, hoping that people can move toward figuring out how that talking filibuster would work. And if you go with the Norm Ornstein plan, it will be very hard for the Republicans to sustain this and to prevent a vote because they just don't have the bladder control. Right. Well, I think bladder control. And actually what Al told me, having been in the Senate is, no, you're allowed to leave the floor to go to the bathroom, but it's still very taxing to be there 24 seven. And they don't care enough. He
1: said a bunch of babies. They don't even show up for regular business, right? They won't yeah. do it. They won't do it. So bills can go through with 51 votes. Congresswoman, you're actually one of the co-sponsors of the Women's Health Protection Act. Can you talk to us a little bit about it, the basic mechanism and what you see as its prospects now?
4: Well, the prospects look pretty good in the House, shockingly. The Speaker said she's going to bring it to the floor as soon as we come back. So thrilled about that. And the idea is simply to make sure that Women are able to exercise their freedom to have this right, which we should be guaranteed under the constitution, and that it's going to protect that right, basically codifying Roe. But I think you're right, the real barrier is obviously the Senate. And I think Mr. Alter's correct that they just don't care enough. It's really frustrating as a relatively new member of the House to work your tail off and have all these hearings and pass all this legislation and see 75-80% of it never even gets consideration. And even when things do go over, I'm trying to remember what the the big bill was that we sent over a year ago. Someone asked for it to be read on the floor, and we then waste 24 hours making clerks read it on the floor. You want the bill read on the floor, you go read it on the floor, right? So we've got this crazy system because of the filibuster is currently constituted that means that a minority can completely veto everything in government, and that just means it's dysfunctional. It's got to change in some manner.
1: All right, quick closeout question on this. The augury of the Texas decision. We're going to have a non-shadow docket review of a Mississippi statute that is equally, in a different way, irreconcilable with Roe. Have the five showed their hand? Is Roe v. Wade the 45-year campaign to overrule it really now truly coming to fruition?
2: I just this morning talked to somebody who works for abortion rights organization, and she said that they believe they will lose the
1: Mississippi case. And the thing is, you can't imagine, unlike other cases, it's sort of hard to imagine the overruling, but it's even harder to imagine any case affirming that statute that lets anything like Roe, the remnants, the embers of Roe, stand. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's
5: Spirited Debate, we pop into the beer aisle for a closer look at the two main types of beers, ales versus lagers. And to help separate lagers from ales, it first comes down to one thing, fermentation. That's the process where the yeast does its magic to give the beer its alcohol content and carbonation. Now, ales are fermented with top-fermenting yeast at warm temperatures, somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas lagers are fermented with bottom-fermenting yeast at colder temperatures, between 35 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Because of their warm fermentations, ales can generally ferment and age in a relatively short period of time, 3 to 5 weeks. Lagers can take longer, up to 6 to 8 weeks. The difference in temperatures and time means this. The quicker fermentation in ales, including stouts, hefeweizens, pale ales, and IPAs, creates a fruitier, spicier flavor that's crisp and refreshing. At Total Wine & More, we have over 1,100 ales, so you can explore all you want. Lagers, including Helles, Pilsner's, and my personal favorite, Schinerbach, have a smoother, richer, more mellow and robust flavor than ales, thanks to their longer fermentation time. We can thank the Bavarian brewers from the Middle Ages for discovering the benefits of longer fermentation after storing their brews in ice caves during the winter. In fact, lager in German means to store, which adds up since lager beer was brewed, covered, and stored with ice harvested from nearby lakes. At Total Wine & More, we have an ice cave of our own filled with a huge selection of ales and lagers from around the world. Just remember the next time you enjoy one, give a little cheers to fermentation.
1: It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we're going to talk about the Freedom of Information Act, a juggernaut federal law that gives any member of the public power to get records from a federal agency. Subject, however, to important exceptions. And to explain it, we are really pleased to welcome Reed Scott, an American actor best known for his roles in My Boys, the TBS comedy where he plays Brendan Branodorf, and for his role as Dan Egan in the great, great HBO series Veep. So I give you Reed Scott on the Freedom of Information Act. What is the Freedom of Information Act? The Freedom of
0: Information Act, or FOIA, is the law that lets individuals and the press obtain records of what the government is doing. These records can be anything from your grandfather's military discharge papers to a request from the New York Times for records about whom cabinet officials regularly meet with. Under the law, federal agencies must disclose requested information unless it is covered by one or more specific exemptions or exclusions. These include classified information, information related to law enforcement and criminal investigations, internal deliberations and privileged information, trade secrets, personal information of individuals, and, oddly enough, information about oil wells. FOIA applies to executive branch departments, agencies, and offices. Under FOIA, individuals can request any agency record, such as documents, photographs, videos, maps, email, and electronic records in the possession of the agency. The requester doesn't need any special form of magic words, just a reasonable written description of the records sought. An agency must produce any responsive documents not subject to an exemption or exclusion. However, the agency is allowed to charge reasonable costs for searching and producing the documents. Most federal agency websites have information on how to make a request. Agencies sometimes refuse to produce records in response to even valid requests. For example, They may rely on an overly expansive view of an exception to disclosure, or they may wrongly claim that they have no responsive records. When that happens, FOIA empowers the requester to file an administrative appeal and then to sue the government to force it to respond properly. FOIA requests are typically processed quickly. The default time is 20 working days or about one month. That can be extended for complex requests and also expedited for certain urgent ones. FOIA requests and litigation can produce powerful information about the workings of the government. For example, in May, a judge ordered the Department of Justice to produce the memos relied on by Bill Barr in determining that former President Trump had not committed obstruction of justice. In response, DOJ released more of the memo that had previously been seen, although it continues to appeal the ruling. In July, the New York Times obtained documents further establishing that top Trump officials believed that he froze security assistance to Ukraine to gain leverage over its president, who he was then asking to announce an investigation into Hunter Biden. For Talking Feds, I'm Reed Scott.
1: Thank you very much, Reed Scott, for that explanation of FOIA. You can see Reed soon in the upcoming Spider Man film, Venom Let There Be Carnage. Opening nationwide, October 15th.
5: Equitable access to high quality healthcare is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, That's OurHealthCalifornia.org.
1: Let's cross the globe now to Afghanistan, where earlier this week, the U.S. completed its withdrawal, ending the country's longest war. Obviously, the terrorist attack by ISIS-K was a sickening blow. It sent the president's approval ratings to the lowest point of his presidency, But Congresswoman, you were personally involved in aspects of the evacuation effort, and Matt and John, you've weighed in. I just wanted to ask people's overall assessment of the withdrawal with the terrible attack, but its aftermath as well, leading up to the 31st. I
4: have to say, the withdrawal itself seems to be broadly popular with the American people, with people from both parties, and certainly was endorsed by the last administration as well. Was it messy? Should things maybe have been done differently at different points? Probably, but war tends to be messy. So I heard an awful lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. I haven't heard anything definitive yet on how things should have been different. I actually had the opportunity to meet with a family, a U.S. citizen who was over there, who we assisted getting through some of the processes. And he said a lot of what happened early on when the horrible images came out were because the forces, not U.S. forces, other nations' forces, and the Afghan police who were supposed to be securing the airport, they just left and allowed all kinds of folks in, opportunists. I think he called them, some of them, thieves. And so the early chaos was not a U.S. failing, but the folks who had been doing the job and then stopped.
3: I've been thinking a lot about the scene in the Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises, where one of the characters asks the other how did you go bankrupt? And his answer was two ways, gradually and then suddenly. I mean, that's what happened here. Look, the policy and the faith inside Afghanistan in the Afghan government went bankrupt over a long gradual period. And then it happened very suddenly. And what we saw were the effects of when that collapse happened suddenly. And the congressman makes the great point for all the criticism of the way the withdrawal has happened. I have yet to hear any substantive critique of how it could have gone better, barring leaving more U.S. forces in for longer, which we did not want to do. The point of the withdrawal was the exact opposite of that. Or two, taking steps in that interim period between our initial withdrawal and the collapse of the government that would have undermined the government and further hastened that collapse. So sure, we could have withdrawn our embassy immediately. That would have been a clear sign that we had no faith in the government and probably led to it collapse even more quickly. Look, I am sure there are things that we could have done differently. Over years, we should have been Vetting and helping facilitate the immigration of Afghans who assisted our military effort and assisted our political efforts there. That was a failing over multiple administrations, most notably hampered intentionally by the Trump administration. That it's one substantive thing that has been a failing for years and years and years. And I'm sure the kind of after action reviews by the administration and hearings by Congress will find other kind of procedural breakdowns. But I think in terms of big things the administration could have done to make this go differently. I have yet to hear anyone offer any kind of alternative way for withdrawing and leaving a government that had no confidence, clearly, that the public had no confidence in and not have this end as chaotically as it did.
4: I just wanted to jump on one thing, the the issue about getting the SIV, the visas for our allies over there. And this is one of the reasons my office was so involved in trying to get folks out. I did that work before I went to Congress. There's a group called IRAP. that started as the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project and then evolved. It was helping both Afghan and Iraqi allies who worked as translators, interpreters, worked in the embassies, et cetera. So going back a decade, it was an onerous, time-consuming process. It could take five to seven years to get someone out. It was so bad. In 2014, John Oliver did a segment on how it was easier for Marines to bring home a pet donkey than it was for them to get out the translator who helped save their lives on a daily basis. I mean, it's been a mess for a long time. Then you layer in COVID, so the embassy is shut. People can't even get the documentation they need. And you layer in Stephen Miller, basically shutting down the whole system. And it's a mess. So we end up with this rapid collapse of the government. We've got people who need visas in a matter of days or hours in a system that doesn't work over a period of years. So that's something I really want to dig into going forward. It's something that Congress tried to push on in the last few months with Jason Crow and some of our other service members, really pushing to try to streamline this process to help the folks that they knew had been such great allies. But that was just a real nightmare scenario and very difficult to navigate.
2: I want to focus on two numbers as a way of telling this story, which I think now is a story of success. And it is the largest evacuation of civilians in world history, the largest, fastest evacuation of civilians. So I wrote a column very critical of the Biden administration early on because of the SIV program and because I thought they just didn't have their act together and they weren't responding To activists in this area. They were ghosting them. A guy named Matt Zeller, who's done some really heroic work in this area, couldn't even get them to return his phone calls at the National Security Council, nor could many members of Congress. But then Zeller was interviewed on MSNBC, I think the 16th of August. And he was asked, well, how many people, how many Afghans should we be getting out who helped us? And he gave the number 86,000. Well, now, if you subtract the 6,000 Americans who've been extricated, 117,000 Afghans have been evacuated. This is an astonishing story that's taken place in the last two and a half weeks. And I think uh, the old thinking on this is obsolete. And those of us who were critical early on, need to revise our judgments. Most people aren't. The same people who supported the war all the way through and are now making ridiculous comparisons between Afghanistan, Korea, South Korea, Japan, and and Germany. Like we could have had a military force there. These are the pillars of the American foreign policy establishment and the national security establishment who've been all over television Picking Joe Biden apart over the last two and a half weeks, never once admitting that they were wrong two weeks ago and wrong in 2009 when they made Barack Obama escalate. And they've been wrong throughout. And they've discredited themselves, not to mention the Republicans who have completely discredited themselves because they attacked Biden without mentioning that Trump released 5,000 Taliban militants, invited them to Camp David and signed what his former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, called a surrender treaty with the Taliban that gave Biden only two choices, either withdraw or escalate. And so for any Republican who supported the Trump administration's policy to get up and criticize Joe Biden right now, it's just unbelievably obnoxious, but I guess par for the course.
1: All three of you now have raised what I think is this really trenchant point of the 20-year long timeline followed by the evacuation and how you see it, because arguably it's never succeeded in history, this trying to prop up to autonomy and strength, the kind of local government. So... If you call that a failing, it's one that you know, we have joined a large club on. And at that point, whenever we were going to withdraw, nobody had uh, faith, including the government itself in the U.S.-backed government. So it was going to collapse very quickly. And I thought it was interesting, John, that Biden, in a really characteristic kind of plain-spoken and earnest, say maybe Truman-esque kind of speech, has opted to really double down and say this was absolutely right and I think is playing the kind of long game here for the historical assessment. And my sense is, like that of the three of you, that it will carry the day. Both you, Matt, and the congresswoman referred to congressional investigation. So you think that it's a foregone conclusion? We're going to see investigations of the evacuation effort? And after 20 years of the, such a slog, do the American people have the stomach for it?
4: Certainly, there's going to be oversight. and We've heard that in caucus meetings in the days since the evacuation began. I mean, people have questions. So we're going to get answers. Both
1: houses, you think?
3: I know there are going to be hearings. I don't know about full-scale investigations in the Senate, but I know that there are hearings planned that have yet, haven't yet have been announced yet. I do want to say one thing about that speech that you referred to that the president made that I haven't seen much commentary on that I found really interesting. There was a point in the speech where these weren't the, the president's exact words, but he basically said, I'm not going to be the president that gets up here and lies to you and says everything is going fine when it's not. I'm going to be the president that faces the truth and makes a difficult decision. That really was an implicit criticism, not just of the Trump administration, but really of President Obama, with whom he had disagreed on Afghanistan policy while he was vice president. And I think the thing that I find interesting about it is not just that he was willing to say that and to break with his former boss, obviously still a very popular figure in the party, but that it wasn't even a controversial statement. There wasn't any outcry from Obama administration officials who aren't in this administration. I doubt former President Obama was really troubled by it. I suspect he feels the same way, but can't say it. It was such an interesting moment for him to say that and then it just to be kind of taken for granted that, yeah, that's kind of what everybody was doing. It's not even a controversial statement.
2: Just a couple of things quickly on that. So I wrote a book called The Promise about Obama's first year as president, which included a long chapter about their deliberations on Afghanistan. And I'm sure all of you have heard that, Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense in both a Republican and a Democratic administration, that he said Joe Biden was wrong about all the major foreign policy issues of his day. Actually, he was right. Gates, Hillary Clinton, the Joint Chiefs, David Petraeus—they were all wrong. Joe Biden was right at the time. He ended up going along with the Obama escalation surge because he was a dutiful Vice President, but even. Obama, as you said, knew that it probably wasn't the right decision. And one of the most vivid memories I've had, I've interviewed nine American presidents, either before, during, or after their presidency. And I'd say right up at the very top would be when I interviewed Obama in late 2009, right after the Afghanistan deliberations. And I said, were you jammed by the Pentagon, this Afghanistan policy, where you jammed, which is bureaucratic expression of being uh, unduly pressured? And he said, "quote I will neither confirm nor deny that I was jammed by the Pentagon." So he felt like the Pentagon was using everything at its disposal to box in an American president. It's an astonishing admission of his having been basically manipulated by the military.
4: Well, isn't it? It's pretty hard right now to contest that because just earlier this month, we had the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan come out with a report saying that there had been this consistent underestimation of the time required to rebuild the country, misunderstanding of context, et cetera. So that's pretty well out there. And one of the things I remember when Biden was first sworn in, someone telling a story about him warning Obama, the generals are going to tell you, you have to do X, Y, and Z because that's what they do. And you need to push back. So he seems to have had this healthy skepticism for decades. And it now comes to fruition.
1: All right, let's look forward now. You had Tony Blinken saying the withdrawal marks a new chapter of America's engagement and one in which we will lead with diplomacy. What does that mean exactly? Leading whom? Leading where? What do things look like in our relationship with Afghanistan going forward?
3: I'll start with a disclosure, which is, I, as Harry knows, I ran Secretary Blinken's confirmation, so obviously have a little bit of a biased opinion about him. I think very highly of him. I think what that meant is a little bit of an assurance that even as we're being criticized for abandoning our allies in Afghanistan, I don't mean our European allies, I mean people who helped us on the ground, even as we're being criticized as abandoning the women of Afghanistan, who did make real progress while we were there. And if there is one success story, that was it, the change in situation for women and girls in Afghanistan, that we're now going to use diplomatic means to try to pressure the Taliban to uphold at least some... Limited rights for women and girls, that we're going to try to use diplomatic means to pressure the Taliban to not turn Afghanistan into a haven of terrorism as it once were. And as he said elsewhere in the speech, we'll also use covert and military means when necessary to pursue that strategy. So I think it was a way of saying, look, we have other tools in our arsenal. Our military is not our only tool for trying to pressure the now government of Afghanistan to behave responsibly in a number of areas. Diplomatic
1: means, you mean literally face-to-face meetings or Joe Biden on the bully pulpit? We just yes, don't sir. have the stomach anymore after 20 years, that exactly. would be the idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: that's what worries me.
4: I mean, overall, I'm thrilled to have a State Department that doesn't view force as the only way to do things, whether it's walls at the southern border or keeping folks in Afghanistan for questionable ends, but is willing to engage in diplomacy and all the tools in the toolbox.
1: I have to say that drones now are across the political spectrum and they're kind of a controversial, or they used to be, but now everyone's them. and starting with President Obama. All right. We still have a few minutes to cover the January 6th House Committee, which they've been ramping up their work, even over recess, sent out big, wide-ranging document request. Seems like they're really playing for keeps. So what's your sense of where they're going and when is it going to be the next major step? Anybody?
4: I think they just took a major
1: step. With the document request? Yeah.
4: Yeah. I
2: think those 11 Republicans, they are very exposed. I know they make a cocky presentation on Fox.
1: Well, McCarthy just this morning, right, got, it made clear he's part of the subject of the subpoena. Jim Jordan, it seems to me, caught extra meetings on the 6th with Trump or phone calls, basically knowing that because a subpoena is coming. So, I mean, that itself is a very salutary impact of the committee, even before there are witnesses in the chair, no? Yeah,
2: and I think McCarthy, we pretty much know the substance of his calls with Trump which were a little acrimonious but we don't know we don't know the substance of the other members calls with and with insurrectionists which were i think pretty likely to find that at least some of them had contacts with insurrectionists and there's a lot of possible points of entry to getting the substance of those calls even if that's not part of the records i think sometimes the public gets confused and thinks that you're actually getting the transcript of these phone calls, you're just getting that the calls took place. But usually when the president is on a call, there's somebody else who's been listening in on another line, at least some of the time. And there are sometimes aides to members who might have been listening in, and they were so intoxicated by their own insurrectionist delusions that they uh, may have been careless in some of what they said to uh, insurrectionists and possibly to the president.
1: All right, let me ask the closeout question here, which is, I do think right now people are behind it and they're achieving results. However, is there a kind of ticking clock here? Is there a date by which the committee needs to complete its work in order not to lose the focus and support of the American people?
4: I think it's going to depend on what comes out over time. If, as I suspect, there's going to be gathering avalanche of material because we've had so many roadblocks placed in the way already. It doesn't make sense that there's nothing there, but let's see what happens. We know that only 10% of the folks who were arrested for their activities on that day have moved towards any plea bargaining or sentencing or anything so far. So there's a lot that's still out there to know. And certainly we're learning more every day.
1: I would just add as a lawyer to John's point, we. Everyone seems to agree that the DOJ is not going to be aggressively trying to go after former administration members. But if Congress uncovers these things, we're talking about serious, serious crimes evading insurrection and that, if nothing else, could have huge political fallout.
3: I think their deadline is September or October of next year. They have to finish before the election because you have to assume the chance that control of Congress would change and the committee would be shut down. So you have to finish before then. It is important to differentiate the job of congressional committees versus the job of, say, prosecutors. Prosecutors and other investigators want to uncover facts, And then there is some adjudication proceeding. But the role of Congress is to both uncover facts and to explain them to the American people in a clear way. That has always been the role of congressional investigation. So while they have to uncover facts, and that will take a while because there will be some things I assume they're going to have to go to court for to compel testimony, for example. I think you ought to assume that over the course of that process and at the end of that process will be long open hearings so the American public can get a sense of what happened, not just through reading a dense report, but by seeing witnesses in front of cameras talking to the American public. And that takes time.
2: Yeah, in that sense, that the Republicans should have been careful what they wished for, because this is going to be much more damaging to them than a bipartisan commission that would have issued a long report that would have been a two-day story. This is going to be uh, water torture for them all next summer and early fall.
4: And we have the problem that it continues. We still have the former president out there still stoking the big lie. Pennsylvania legislatures engaging in a new phase of auditing the 2020 results. And we have a continuing series of folks coming to the U.S. Capitol with mayhem on their minds. So all those things can prolong this.
1: So there's an end. We have 90 seconds or so for our final feature of five words or fewer where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today the question comes from Debbie Peterson, who asks, how can Texas nullify the federal constitution? I think she's got a point of view there coming through, but I think we understand where she's coming from. Anyone, how can Texas nullify the
3: federal constitution?
2: Judges decide what law is.
4: Taking that a step further, I'd say only if SCOTUS is complicit
3: with the court's consent. Yeehaw. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And in Texas, yeehaw, as we well know, is one That's exactly (laughs) exactly
1: right. (laughs) That's that's it. I, I think I have nothing to say, but I'll say it can't, but can intimidate. There you have it. That's our episode for today. Thank you very much to John, Matt, and Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these are not outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. In just the last few days, we've posted discussions on the Texas case, ISIS-K and domestic terrorism. And the response of domestic terrorists to the Afghan withdrawal. So there's a wealth of really great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what's on offer and then decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Knauss and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Dawn Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Kalena Tono. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Reed Scott for explaining the Freedom of Information Act. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. See you next time.